0: Well, good morning. Please be seated. Thank you, Father Dave, for that uh, kind introduction. Um, Grandkids are great. You get a chance to do it all over again and then send them home to their parents, right? (laughs) It's kind of fun. So let me draw this up. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. When Mother Teresa died in September of 1997, the world did not notice her passing. That's because the same week, Princess Diana was tragically killed in a car crash. The world mourned her as an attractive celebrity and as a tragic person, eliciting sympathy far beyond anything she ever accomplished in her young life. At the time, I thought the contrast of Mother Teresa's and Princess Diana's death, just days apart a telling commentary about what the world values and does not value. Following her death, Mother Teresa's letters to her priest confessor became public. She wrote of her emptiness, sadness, and lack of joy in serving her Lord. Some pounced on this as evidence of her hypocrisy, for she was outwardly a joyous and bubbling personality, though stern and committed to caring for those who lived in the gutters of Calcutta, India. But those accusers missed something. Mother Teresa had prayed that the Lord would make her one with those who had lost everything, who had no hope or joy in this world, who had only loneliness and suffering for companions, and who would die alone and neglected. So the Lord answered her prayer. She became one with those who lived and died in the gutters. Her prospects for a husband and family were abandoned when she became a nun, and in her spiritual life, she felt abandoned by her Lord, empty, neglected. She poured out her bitterness in letters, but did not step aside from her calling. So why am I talking about Mother, now Saint Teresa? I never met her, though I met some of her order, the Sisters of Charity, who at great risk to themselves in Baghdad in 2003, in the midst of war, Took in a young teenage girl who ran away from her family, rather than becoming the fourth wife of an old sheikh. No one else would help her. The sisters did, at great risk. The reason I bring this up is that Naomi shares much the same heartache as Teresa did. In the first chapter of Ruth, she fled Israel with her husband to escape a famine. The first sign, I believe in her mind, that God was punishing her and her family. Famine was the result of unfaithfulness, and Naomi's husband unfaithfully fled to Moab, leaving her sons to marry outside of the faith, another cause for God's disfavor. In quick succession, the account in Ruth tells of her losing her husband and two sons, being left bereft and bitter, with only two foreign daughters-in-law for company. So much like Job, right? The two books do have a lot in common. Now her prospects were bleak and she lamented her condition to the entire village upon returning home, which lament was really an indictment against God for his unfaithfulness to her. God had violated his covenant with her and left her alone and abandoned. In a word, she suffered, seemingly without cause. There was no redemption for her. She would die alone like those in the Calcutta gutters. And so Naomi complained, like Jonah did, like many, many of the Psalms also do, accusing God of motives and intentions he did not harbor. But her accusations were true. From her perspective, God had abandoned her and violated the covenant. Leviticus 23, especially verses one through 13, is very clear that if Israel kept covenant, kept the laws, God would hold up his end and keep his promises of food, family, and abundance. So Naomi complained. And like God always does, he took the complaint, heard it as a prayer and began to move toward her with favor, to remember her as the scriptures say, to bless her, just amazing. Now Ruth provides in the first chapter a glimpse that perhaps God was working, albeit in the shadows and periphery of her life But Naomi really had no idea, and Ruth's faithfulness was small comfort to her at that point. Now, God could have kept Naomi from such great sorrow and suffering, but he did not. It seems that God actually pushed Naomi into such great despair. But for what purpose? Naomi took it as God's hand turned against her, but Ruth... You know, there came a point about three-quarters of the way through my second combat deployment, after being separated from my wife and children for about three years, that I lost hope in my ability to minister to those who were suffering. I no longer had what it takes to wade into the death, to administer last rites, pray for survivors. It was just too much. So one night I just flat-out refused to do it. But if it was as if God the Holy Spirit, then physically pushed me into the dark circle of grief, surrounded by soldiers mourning as their friend was put into a body bag. I remember hearing like a clear voice, embrace the suffering. This is also for you. Empty yourself, expect the pain. Now, I know that's rather an extreme example and possibly not an experience shared by many of you. But what we might have in common is that in my upbringing in evangelical, mostly Baptist churches, I was always taught a theology of the abundant Christian life. Discipled by a dear friend who worked with Campus Crusade for Christ, when I was a brand new Christian and only 16 years old, I was taught that God loved me and had a wonderful plan for my life. Much like Naomi expected, I'm sure. But I never had a theology of suffering. The Holy Scripture over and over again commends suffering to us as part of God's plan for our lives. St. Paul writes to the Philippians, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now I won't lay out to you all that I've learned about suffering, though I'm sure some of you could teach me a thing or two, except to say that I now believe there is no other way to completely know God except through suffering, the way of the cross. And that suffering is his grace gift to us, not something to be managed, to get over, or something to put behind you. I've learned that to embrace the suffering is to follow Jesus where he intends we should go and that there is a certain vicarious and sacramental grace, more properly special grace, in sharing suffering, even combat deaths with those in grief. God's grace is made available through suffering. This grace escapes our experience and cannot be known except by faith. And the problem of suffering was defined and answered for me by finally realizing that our walk in the spirit passes by the way of the cross. We want to join Christ on the mountaintop of joy, but there really is only one mountain he went to, and there was the cross. He was a man acquainted with sorrows and grief. Are we his servants to expect otherwise in our lives? So when grief comes, I can now recognize God's hand in it, not run from it, but take strength from his grace that comes through that grief. This is apprehended in the end by faith. And that faith In terms of the book of Ruth, a faith that apprehends that God's activity in our lives is very often not in the light of day, but in the shadows whose intervention in our lives is not by direct intervention, a miraculous relief of circumstances, but by an ever so lightly exercised providential control, which providence may not be determined at all in this life. As many of you do, I have quite a few friends buried not far from here in Arlington National Cemetery. So what of their redemption, at least in this life? It's sometimes hard to grasp death being so final from one point of view, children taken with cancer, others in car accidents, some by their own hand, and some like my friend I buried just this last Tuesday in those grounds from alcoholism. Many soldiers have demons who chase them from the battlefield, and they chose to self-medicate to find relief. But the families left behind, what of them? In this case, a faithful wife and four now confused young adult children. We, we all have our final goodbyes. May God give us grace to keep short accounts and find comfort in the gospel, for after all, we grieve not as those who have no hope but we grieve and suffer and sometimes doubt God's blessings in our lives, but we walk by faith and not by sight, and the story of Naomi certainly teaches us that truth. Nevertheless, in the end, for Naomi, God redeemed her and redeems us, if not in this life, then certainly in the next. That God would redeem Naomi is never a foregone conclusion in Ruth. And in that tenuous lies a lesson for us. The story of Ruth does not represent the style of life which exercises caring responsibility on the part of family or of God as a foregone conclusion. It is portrayed as attainable but elusive. There are difficulties in our path. For Naomi, the way in which Orpah in chapter one and the near redeemer of chapter four that we just read the way those two behave, withdrawing from their duty and loyalty to her only serves to heighten the remarkable character of Ruth, who was not a family member in the covenantal sense. The point, I think it may be to teach us that there are people in our lives who do not do all that they can to bring about the relief that we are looking for. So don't sweat it. God himself will redeem you, both in spirit and body, in ways that are indiscernible to you at times. And then there's that mysterious scene at the threshing floor in chapter three. With intricate artistry, the author gets across that the outcome is by no means predictable. It's hard to avoid the conclusion that temptation is a distinct ingredient here, temptation combined with risk. Boaz and Ruth could have succumbed to that physical temptation just as we are tempted to take shortcuts to happiness and thus miss out on what God has for us by waiting. Patience in suffering, refusing to give in to despair. Boaz and Ruth's example to us in very compromising circumstances is that they proceeded to carry forward with this great burden of redeeming Naomi with a determination that all things will be done in the proper manner. In a word, they kept their virtue, allowing God to keep His word in time. The point: God will keep covenant with us, despite what our experience tells us, despite how others may fail us, and despite our own proclivities to despair and give up. This is of paramount importance to all of us, but especially today to our confirmands. You will not always experience God's clear guidance and support in your life but it is there and grasped by faith in his promises alone. So don't give up. Naomi's complaint was steadily, though slowly, resolved. And thus we come to the heart of the matter, chapter four, The Redeemer Revealed. The quiet, almost idyllic mood of the Book of Ruth and the charm of its gentle heroine has given it a special appeal to many generations of the faithful. Since Ruth is a Moabitess and not an Israelite, the effect of the book, if not its purpose, is to create a sympathy towards those who put themselves under the protection of Israel's God. In this, we're all Moabites, and we are called to be a Ruth in many ways. Loyal, steady, never giving up, taking instruction, not from Naomi now, but from Holy Scripture, and allowing God's saving grace to infuse us and develop us over time. This lesson is not too far removed from St. Paul's description of the Gentiles who are grafted into Israel and share in its covenantal blessings secured by our ultimate redeemer, kinsman redeemer, Jesus. Israel will become a light to the nations because of Ruth and God's steady hand behind the scenes. The opening verses of Ruth tell of her marriage to a Hebrew man and how on his death she chose to return to Judah with Naomi to share her fortunes of her husband's people rather than remain in the relative security of her native land. I've often told my children that there is a thin line between faith and foolishness. We don't know the ending, really. And so what motivated Ruth to follow Naomi? As chapter one says, she was certainly determined, says that twice about her, but she was also motivated by a heart desire to stay loyal to Naomi. Though faced with Naomi's complaints, Ruth followed her heart. Much like when we celebrate Holy Eucharist today, we say lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. Ours is a heart religion, one which throws ourselves completely on the mercy of our Redeemer, who in fact redeems us and makes us a family of believers, as God did with Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, and then Obed the son, truly a miracle baby. In the end, Ruth's loyalty and kindness won her the love of Boaz. And through her marriage to him, she became the great-grandmother of David the King and a progenitor of our King Jesus, Christ the King, whose kingship we celebrate today and in the naming of this church. And what, in the end, has caused our Redeemer to sow such love for us? Certainly not our loyalty and kindness when it was our sins that humiliated Jesus in front of Pontius Pilate and drove him to the cross. In the end, it was his love for us and not ours for him that led to our redemption through Jesus's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension as our king. And that is the heart of the gospel. God the Father's love and work for us through Jesus his son and our response to him in love and gratitude, which becomes like Ruth, our gift to this sin-sick world and to those of us who are sometimes in a dark and lonely place. Amen.